The temple was the most holy place in Jerusalem, the center of Jewish life. It was a place of sacrifice, a place of atonement, a place of worship, a place of teaching, and a place of communion with God. Being a building holding such significance to God's people, why would Jesus say he was going to destroy the temple? Today on Bloom, we'll discuss how the countercultural Christ came so that God's temple would not be limited to just one place, but would reside in his people with Christ as the ultimate priest. I'm your host, Jen Robinson, for March 5th, 2021. Welcome to Bloom. This is a podcast designed to inspire, encourage, and grow women in their relationship with each other and the Lord. So over the past couple of years, my love for the study of origins and scripture has really grown. I didn't always have this natural curiosity and interest in history, but the more I study it, especially in scripture, the more the truth of the gospel and the faithfulness of God becomes more evident. When we look to the Old Testament where things originated, where they began, we see where traditions and practices came from. We see why certain rituals, festivals, and feasts were celebrated. And it provides us with some context to how the culture came to be once Jesus stepped on the scene. I think this is one of the reasons I love the Old Testament so much. It's setting the scene. It's the backdrop for the New Testament. It's the foreshadowing of Christ. So today we're talking about the temple, its significance, its structure, and the spiritual story behind Jesus' countercultural claim that the temple, the sacred center of Jewish life, was going to be destroyed. Now, I want to just tell you, starting off, I want you to stay with me here today. I want you to listen and not consider this so much as a history lesson, because we're going to go through a lot of details and a lot of facts in the Old Testament, but looking at this as a treasure that is within the Old Testament, how it perfectly matches what Christ did in the New Testament. In this instance, I want the history of the temple to shed light on Jesus's countercultural statement, but most importantly, his fulfillment of the word. In order to gain a little more understanding into the significance and purpose of the temple, we're going to briefly take a peek back at the Old Testament. We're going to study the backdrop. So in the book of Exodus, when Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt and God's chosen people were in the wilderness, God instructed Moses to establish a sanctuary for his people to engage in regular, undivided spiritual worship and communion with him. Now, as we learn, the Israelites suffered from what we could call spiritual amnesia, and they would need constantly reminded of who they serve and who delivered them. So God wanted a special meeting place so the Israelites would have somewhere to worship him and not forget who they serve. This special place was called the tabernacle. Now the word tabernacle means tent. And this is a very appropriate name because the Israelites lived in tents during their time in the wilderness. The tents were accommodating for travel because they weren't permanent structures and the Israelites could carry them as they journeyed. Now, even though it was in complete essence a tent, God still instructed Moses to give the tabernacle a specific design and layout. I'm not going to dive into the architectural details and the measurement specifications, 
but there is incredible significance as to how the tabernacle was laid out. So first, the tabernacle had an outer enclosure or court. And the open court was where the sacrificial offerings were presented and public acts of worship took place. These sacrifices were to atone for the people's sins. But we'll come back to that in a moment. Now within the outer chamber of the tabernacle was a table for what was called the bread of presence. It was a small structure made of acacia wood overlaid with gold and each week two heaps of bread would be placed on the table. Now that might sound like an unusual choice of decor for a sacred space, but this bread would be a remembrance that God was Israel's source for life and sustenance. Exodus 25.30 is God's command for this very bread, saying, And you shall set the bread of presence on the table before me regularly. Now, even this table with bread holds divine symbolism in the New Testament and Christ. Moving into the next and final section of the tabernacle, in the innermost shrine was the most holy place, consisting only of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, what is the Ark of the Covenant? It's very different from Noah's Ark. It was much smaller and didn't have any animals, to say the least. The Ark would travel with the Israelites wherever they went. The solid gold lid of the Ark was called the Mercy Seat. It had two golden cherubs whose wings stretched toward the center of the lid. Now, The Mercy Seat symbolized God's divine presence, the supposed place God was seated. And from this place, God was to grant mercy to the people when the sacrificial blood of the animals was sprinkled there on the Day of Atonement. Are you already fitting the pieces to the puzzle and how this connects with Christ? And then inside the ark were the tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments, the teaching instructions God had revealed to Moses to speak to the people. There was also a pot of manna. This is the bread from heaven that God gave Israel. And Aaron's staff. Aaron, the brother of Moses, was the first high priest. An important position in the tabernacle and the temple, as we'll later discuss. Both of those were also in the Ark of the Covenant. And an elaborate veil separated the most holy place from the outer compartment of the tabernacle. So even as the Israelites traveled from place to place, the Ark was wrapped in this veil to prevent from being seen. Because only the high priest on special ceremonial occasions was permitted to see the ark. Now when we fast forward later on, we read about the birth of the temple. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 2 that when David became king, he felt it wasn't appropriate for him to live in a fine house of cedar while the ark of the Lord remained in a tent. So David proposed to construct the temple a beautiful, solid structure to take the place of the tabernacle. Now, the temple was eventually completed under Solomon's reign. And at one point, it was destroyed by the Babylonians when they burned Jerusalem. And then it was later reconstructed. So similar to the construction of the tabernacle, the temple contained three sections as well. The portico, the holy place, and the most holy place or inner sanctuary, which contained similar specific spaces for worship and sacrifice, with the Ark of the Covenant being housed in the most holy place. Now, we're going to switch gears here for a moment. So in order to gain more understanding of the temple, we're going to consider another key component of the temple that has nothing to do with the actual structure, but the people who oversaw the temple. 
the priests. The priesthood was a direct representation of the nation's relationship with God. The priests guarded the sanctuary and carried out the several responsibilities, such as offerings and sacrifices. They gave instruction of the law, and they even acted as judges. Now, The high priest stood as the chief leader of the priests, and he was a representation of the purity of the priesthood. As you might recall from the tabernacle, only the high priest could enter the most holy place on one day each year, the day of sacrificial atonement. And as I mentioned earlier, this was the day when the people brought a sacrifice to offer as the payment for their family's sins. And the blood from the sacrifice was sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant, which is positioned behind the veil in the most holy place. So we're getting a better picture of the importance of the temple in Jewish culture, about God's instruction, the law, the religious practices. Now Jesus, who already performed miracles, signs, and wonders, and challenged the leaders in their systems and teachings, comes to say probably one of the most dramatic countercultural statements yet when he said the temple would be destroyed. Now, if Jesus is the Son of God, the same God who instructed the Israelites to build the temple, why would he make this surprising statement? If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to John chapter 2. Here, Jesus went to the temple in Jerusalem right before Passover. But he discovered that instead of the people preparing for a time of remembrance and worship, they were misusing the temple for selfish gain. So we're going to begin reading in chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume you. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove you have authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said. They believed the scripture in the words that Jesus had spoken. Now the people probably thought Jesus sounded crazy. How could he destroy the temple? And even more astounding, raise it in three days. The temple that had taken 46 years to build. What a radical countercultural statement Jesus is making here. But as we learned, Jesus was not referring to the actual temple, but himself. Before Jesus' crucifixion, he and the disciples sat down together for one final meal, the Last Supper. Now, do you remember the bread of presence in the temple that we talked about? We recall that the bread of presence symbolized that God was the source of life. Now catch this. Here at the Last Supper, we see Christ break bread with his followers as a symbol that through the breaking of his body, he was becoming the source of eternal life. 
like the manna, bread from heaven. Scripture tells us that Jesus refers to himself as the bread of life. He's saying, I represent those loaves of bread in the temple. The bread of presence was a remembrance of God being Israel's source of sustaining life. And at the Last Supper, what were Christ's words to his disciples as they ate the bread and drank the wine? Do this in remembrance of me. Because he is the source of life, eternal life. So we know what happens next after the Last Supper. Through a quick series of events, Jesus submits himself to fulfilling his ultimate mission on earth and dies on the cross. The Gospel of Matthew gives an account that when Jesus gave up his spirit on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn, the earth shook, and rocks split. So going back to the temple, I want us to remember the Ark of the Covenant. Now you may recall that only the high priest could enter the most holy place in the temple, and he only did so one day a year to sprinkle the blood from the animal sacrifices on the mercy seat where God would accept the offering as payment for sins. Also remember what we said about the high priest and what he represented. He represented the purity of the priesthood. That one priest represented the purity of the entire priesthood. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil that separated the ark from the people was torn. What does that mean for us today? It means that Christ became, first of all, our new high priest. And he gave us access to the throne of grace through the shedding of his blood. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus, through his pure sacrifice, now represents us. Because of his purity, we are now considered spotless before God. We've been restored back to relationship with him because we have been bought by the blood of Christ. He tore the veil, was the atoning sacrifice, and became the high priest. Now it's interesting that the temple, a culturally sacred structure that contained three distinct chambers, was replaced by one man who died and rose from the grave in three days and changed our relationship with God forever. But this series does not just talk about how Jesus was countercultural. What does this mean for the church today? When we consider the temple, what is our challenge? If Christ is the high priest, that makes us the priesthood. Recall that the priesthood was a direct representation of the nation's relationship with God. We are representatives of God. We're ambassadors. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness 
into his wonderful light. We have been called to declare the praises of God who saved us from our sins. We have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in us. We are walking, breathing temples. The living God now resides in us, not in a veiled, sacred chamber that is removed from us, but working in us and speaking through us to spread the good news. So the challenge is this. If we are a temple of the Holy Spirit, are there any tables or areas in your life that need to be turned over by Jesus? In the beginning of the story, we read in, chapter, in John chapter 2 that Jesus was righteously angry over how the people were treating the temple, the house of God. Jesus began turning the tables over. Are our temples honoring Christ in such a way that demonstrates the high price he paid for us? We are not our own, but we have been bought at a price. Do our lives bring honor and glory to God? Are there tables of pride in your life, tables of complaint, tables of perfectionism, tables of idolatry, tables of addiction, or maybe tables of fear that need to be turned over? Be on guard to abstain from the ways of the world or the deceitful schemes of the enemy infiltrating into our temples. Remember that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood that represents Christ, our high priest. So let's go and proclaim the good news of the one who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. The marginalized, the sinful, and even the women were not considered worthy to be called followers of a first century rabbi. But Jesus didn't limit his chosen by the expected credentials of culturally acclaimed worthy candidates. Next time on Bloom, we'll discover how the countercultural Christ didn't look at someone's past, status, role, or spiritual resume in order to use them to advance his kingdom. Keep growing, and God bless.